good to be in front of you. We're going to open up God's holy word and his spirit will move. And we by faith believe that. And so apart from the spirit, this preaching is in vain. But with the Holy Spirit, it's the thing that regenerates souls to awaken them to Christ and cares for Christians so that they would behold even more what is the beauty of Christ eternally and be cared for and sustained until the second coming where our God comes to rescue us again. So that's what's about to happen from the book. So I ask you to to brace yourselves so that God's love might be poured out through his Son. Would you pray with me? Your love is scandalous, O Lord. It's almost too good to be true that you, a heavenly, holy God who knows no sin, would look at us who are covered in Christ and say beautiful and perfect. And so I pray that non-Christians here today would hear the call of divine love through Christ and be called to love because you alone are love. And may your people be shepherded by the good shepherd and the words that have been written by his spirit. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue along in our series in the book of 1 John. We've been going through that as a a church for quite some time now. And uh, just two weeks ago in chapter 3, we looked at a passage that had to do with uh, the role of love in the church. And um, I'm not sure if you remember or not, but during our time together, we thought about the necessity and also the call to love one another in the church just as God has loved us in Christ. And so this morning, as we open up our passage, um, we're going to jump back into that idea and theme of love. And here's why. The answer is kind of simple. It's because that's what John, the author, does in this next chapter that we're about to endeavor upon. John is going to revisit this topic of love um, for many of the same reasons that he did before. And so you, um, as you're there in the audience, might be thinking to yourself, well, why would he do this? He already covered it. Why would he recover it? Why would he revisit it? The idea of love is quite simple, maybe even redundant. I'm going to hear many of the things that I did two weeks ago. Yes, you will. Um, But here's the thing that I want for us to know as we um, endeavor upon and re-engage this topic of love this morning, it's this. is that the doctrine of love um, is really uh, not that simple, not that easy. In fact, um, it's infinitely inexhaustible and profoundly relevant to us, the church, and people in countless ways. There's one man that I read often. His, he goes by the name of D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson wrote this book titled The Hard Doctrine of Love. And in it, this is what he said. At first thought, understanding the doctrine of the love of God seems simple compared to trying to fathom other things like that of the Trinity or predestination. Especially since the overwhelming majority of those who believe in God view him as a loving being. But this is precisely what makes the doctrine of love so difficult. The only aspect of God's character the world still believes in is his love. His holiness, his sovereignty, and his wrath are often rejected as being incompatible with a loving God. 
Because pop culture has so distorted and secularized God's love, even many Christians have lost a biblical understanding of it and in turn have lost a vital means to knowing who God truly is. And so the reason why I start off this sermon this morning with this quote here is because right now the message that our culture and world is sending to us is love is love. Meaning um, love is whatever we want it to be. Uh, Love is whatever is right in our own hearts, whatever we feel is right. That we as people have our own authority and with our own wisdom are able to define this idea in term. And so what I want to do this morning um, in light of this is turn to the Bible and show you with gentleness not only what it has to say about this, what is true love, but also why God and his definitions and ways of love are not only different than what the world says, but infinitely better. How do I plan on showing you this or doing this? Well, by revealing to you just how holy and just and merciful and costly and sacrificial and kind God and his love have proven to be through the sending and appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I want to show you that Jesus is true love, and his ways are not only perfect and right, but after seeing them, that you would also understand and have your heart come to terms with the fact that they are trustworthy and good. And when we by faith abide in him, we will not only be able to know the one who created love, but who himself is love, and thus be filled with a heavenly love purposed for our blessing and good. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open this morning. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. If you don't know where 1 John is, it's way at the back right-hand side of the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 21. And if you're following along this morning, I've titled this sermon, Understanding God Through Love. There are three things i like to show us from this text as we journey through it, and uh, they are this. Number one, I'd like to show you how God's love reveals his holy grace. Number two, I'd like to show you how God's love bears spiritual fruit. And lastly, I'd like to show you how God's love exalts Christ in the church, how it reveals his holy grace, how it bears spiritual fruit, and how it exalts Christ in the church. We're going to begin our time together by reading the, the text up front. I'll invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles or on screens. John writes this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, uh, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. We're very thankful for it. Right now, we're moving to point number one, and i like to show you how God's love reveals his holy grace. Well, uh, as we begin looking at our text here, one of the first things that you'll notice is how John the author in verse 7 not only gives this church this command to love, but also here provides for them the reason for doing so. Look what he says. Beloved, let us love one another. There's the reason. For God is from, for love is from God. What we must remember about this text here is that John is not talking to an audience full of people who are indifferent to God or opposed to God or skeptical of him and his character. He's talking to Christians, a.k.a. the church. Those who know him, love him, and at the core of their being, desire him. And so starting off here, what I want for us to see is that this command to love God is supported by this treasure of truth that it comes from the one in whom they long after. And what John is doing here as he opens up this text is giving the church a practical way to apply the teaching last week that you learned in verses 1 through 6 when he said to test the spirits. In other words, John is saying, hey church, do you want to know a practical way to apply the teaching from uh, last week of, of recognizing who is the man and woman of God and faith among you, look for the one who, because of Christ, loves. Notice this. He does not say, look for the one who knows theology. Notice how he does not say, look for the one who understands the governmental structure of the PCA. Notice how he doesn't say, look for the one who knows Bible trivia or went to school for this or has a degree who, or who holds a title or role. No, he doesn't say any of the things that our fallen human hearts would expect him to say. But what he says is, if you want to see and recognize a true Christian, look for the one who loves. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not come from God. Why? Because God is love. In other words, our understanding of love or ability to see and discern it comes from our understanding of God. How do you and I as Christians get an understanding of God? From the book. 
But you see, the biblical definition of love is much different than our time and cultures. D.A. Carson, in that book that I mentioned to you earlier, went on to say this. The love of God in our culture has been purged of anything we find uncomfortable. It's been sanitized, democratized, and above all, has been sentimentalized. My generation was taught to sing what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And I'd say, in response to this, this is exactly what we need. But because of our culture and time and its inability to define it or its um, temptations to leave love up to the um, beholder or the one who claims to have it or encouragement to them to make of it whatever they please, you and I as Christians need to stop and pump the brakes before embracing this theme. Why? Because this is what John, the author here, does. If you look in the text, John shows us that love has a definition and origin. To keep this idea of love from being too vague or open to subjective interpretation, there's the definition, by the way, God is love. See it? And then to keep it from being too vague or open to subjective interpretation, look at verses 9 through 10 and what he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. What is John trying to do? He's trying to give you and I a practical and exact picture through Christ of what this origin and definition of love is. And if you look there at that fancy word at the last sentence, propitiation, here's what that means. Propitiation means to make atonement or be a sin sacrifice. And so, the question is, why or for what purpose did Christ need to atone or make sacrifice for sin? Are you ready for the answer? And I say again with gentleness, to appease the holy wrath of God. James, what are you talking about? I thought you just said God was loving. Well, he is. What John is doing here from the place of the cross, that's what he's referring to here, is revealing to us two things. Number one, first and foremost, that God is holy, meaning he knows no sin. And number two, also showing us how God in all of his holiness was still able to extend and offer mercy. This is why Jesus had to die. Not because he sinned, but because we sinned. In other words, Christ, the Son of God, became our sin substitute, died in our place, on our behalf, for our rebellion. Christ, the perfect sinless sacrifice, is what upholds the characteristic of the holiness of God. But why can't God then just forgive? Couldn't he just have pardoned sin without taking care of it? Absolutely not, because if God were to do that, then he would become an unjust, immoral God and excuse the evil and leave the guilty unpunished. He could not do that. That would be a violation of his character. And so Christ, the sinless sacrifice on our part, is what upholds his holiness. And through this very death, God himself offers to us mercy. And here's the thing. You and I, as people, can never understand the riches of God's mercy 
if we do not first come to terms with just how holy and just God is and how infinitely depraved we are as fallen creatures. That we have no right to say love is love. That we are not God. That God is the only perfect, self-defined, and self-sustaining being in the universe. And since he alone is the creator and maker of all things, he alone has the right and authority to define love. Oh, and by the way, whenever God reigns and rules, which is always, he's always for the sake of human flourishing in the world. If you crack open the Bible and you start to begin, uh, read from the beginning, what you'll see is God intended for humanity to flourish according to his perfect divine design. He's for us, not against us. But what we have today in our secularized culture, which consists of human beings made in the image of God, are creatures. Assuming the position of the creator seeking to do whatever they please with what has been created. The institution of marriage, sex, and gender. And whether they know it or not, by biblical definition, have found themselves in the place of God's wrath and displeasure. I want to read as gentle as I can, just from the words, so that you don't hear my voice you would hear the Lord's voice, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is why Christians are to consider our time and culture a crisis. Because right now, there are image bearers who've been made by the perfect God, by the masses, on their way to destruction as they live in opposition to his will. And what is God's will according to the scriptures? That none would perish but that all would have the free gift of eternal life. And so we don't look at them as enemies. We don't run away from them who, have, who struggle with these struggles. But then what would we do what are we called to? Well, we are called to embody, receive, and offer grace, preach, and live the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is not morality. The gospel is not religion. It is not clean yourself off, shake yourself off, stop doing that, get right, and better yourself in order for you to have acceptance from God. No. It's that God loves. Love wins. Look what John says in verse 10. In this is love. Look at this. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved 
us. Who then does John define the church as to? As sinners and wretched rebels. Romans chapter 3 says no one is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so you and I can play pretend or put a mirage on our eyes of false truth, thinking that some are blessed or in a position of the deserving more because of the religious duty or morality, or we can come to terms with the fact of the gospel which says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that no one is holy or right. And so John, 21 times in this passage, repeats the word God. Why? To emphasize his initiative. Our salvation to remind us of what actually took place when you and I received this gospel of grace. What is this gospel of grace? It's that God, before any of this happened, saw you and me in all of our sin and misery and rebellion and out of the essence of his love offered himself to us. Before you and I did anything for him, while we were dead in our sin, unable to change ourselves, God offered himself to us. In other words, we didn't meet God halfway. We didn't take the proper steps forward to be saved by grace. None of us did good deeds to elevate ourselves to the position of the deserving. No, the gospel is that God saw you and me in all of our sin and misery when we least deserve it, when we did not love him, when we did not desire him, when, our, when we lived as enemies in shame, in rebellion, in sin, he showed his love for us in this, that Christ died for us. When John says God is love, he is not identifying a quality that God possesses but rather he is making a statement about the essence of his being. What we have here through the sacrifice of Christ is the holy and begotten Son of God, leaving the eternal pleasures of heaven and entering into a fallen world to save wretched man. Scandalous love. Free love, willing love. One man said this, therefore to imagine that God does not love us is to deny him, to reject his character. It is to distort his free grace into something much less worthy, a conditional love that depends on the attractiveness or worthiness of the object for it to be exercised. Did you know that God loves the one, hold on to your seats here, who waves the rainbow flag. Did you know that God loves the man who dresses like a woman? Did you know that God loves the one who curses and blasphemes his name so much that he sent his son to die for their sin? For God so loved the world. So we have been recipients of this grace for this sole purpose so that we might 
Bring this grace, this good news. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call upon him who they have not believed in? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching the gospel? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the what? Good news. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. Could it be that God's love is so scandalous, so marvelous, and so perfect that he sees us in all of our sin and misery and has within his belly bubblings from an eagerness to outpour his love on sinners. I'll forgive you. I'll show you mercy. I'll accept you always and forever. You can come to me. You don't have to clean yourself up. Just come. I'm merciful. I'll cleanse you. I'll wash your feet. I'll die for you. I'll never cast you away. No one can clean themselves up before they come to me because that would be in a direct opposition of the gospel. You see, the only way that we can preach this gospel of grace to others is to understand and believe in it for ourselves. No one's worthy besides the one who alone is worthy, and he bids sinners to come freely. And so I want to give you two um, applying points. Um, if you're a Christian and you're struggling with sin, it could be sexual morality, it could be same-sex attraction, it could be drunkenness. It could be whatever you fill in the blank. I want to give you the gospel so that you can get out of it. I want you to renounce this temptation to work harder or try better to get yourself out of it. What then do I want you to do? It's not my will, it's God's will. What does God want you to do? He wants for you to consider that he died for your sins on a cross. That's it. And let's just see what that love, that supernatural love does. Produces obedience. Here's the second thing. Um, having been recipients of grace, I'm now speaking to Christians. Um, those of us who know the holy God in this culture that is progressive and doing whatever it pleases with these ideas, even in this fact that we might be hated or thought of as bigots, would you cling to God and his word and resist the temptation to soften the gospel or excuse God's holiness or justice or try to make it palatable, but rather hold on to what is true and imitate Christ and be eager to show and extend it toward anyone and everyone, whether they're for you or they're against you for the sake of love. Our hope is not in morality, it is not in religion, but it is in God and his gospel. His kingdom comes by the Spirit to dwell in the hearts of man. That's it. Amen. We're going to move to uh, point number um, two now. That was point number one, how God's love reveals his holy grace. I want to bring you into point number two and show you how now it bears spiritual fruit. We're going to slow down a little bit and shift a little bit of themes here. 
Sorry, um, that's a lot to chew on. You can store that in your brain. We're going to move under this topic of love to something else. What I want for us to notice here is how John in uh, verse 12, under this same un- umbrella of love, uh, picks up a different theme, which is actually the, the theme of abiding, abiding in, in love. Four times he mentions it in this text um, for a reason and a purpose. You, I think you all know this. I think it was announced last week at church how Lizzie and I and my family, we went down to General Assembly last week. It's like a denominational conference thing, but it's actually really fun. I'm kind of a nerd, and so when I'm um, told to go and do business for denominational things, I actually view it as a vacation. Uh, I know that's weird, but I consider it to be a vacation. It's really fun to go to our general assembly. We learn, we eat, we drink, we fellowship, we network, we make decisions, and we do Presbyterian things, and I know that's also weird. Um, but, uh, but like, so, so here's, here's what happened. You probably know this, but I'm just going to retell the story. My family and I were with the Swayze family and the Bennett family and my family. And after worship, Lizzie said to me, Hey, uh, I can't move. I was like, Whoa, that's kind of heavy. What do you mean by that? She's like, I'm in a lot of pain. I was like, okay, what should I do? And before I was able to do anything, she looked at me and said, I'm going to pass out. I was like, don't do that. (laughs) And so she passed out. And then the EMS came, and they did a crappy job. And so I said, forget you. I'm going to take my wife to the hospital. And we got to the hospital. And um, the doctors informed us that my wife had appendicitis. And um, that was really scary for me to go through. And so for three or four days, we spent our time in the hospital, away from our friends and family and General Assembly, uh, removing an organ from my wife's body. And um, it was a hard week. It was, a, it was a really hard week. The kids were at home or in the Airbnb with all the people. And, um, and then after we got home, six hours, drove the trip. Wife rushed out of surgery, drove the trip, got home. The first thing that JJ says the next day is, uh, Dad, I don't feel so good. I'm confused on where I am. Took his temperature. He had 102.5 fever. The doctor said, you, you got to go to the hospital. And so we went back to the hospital. So first night back was back in the hospital. And um, do you want to know what happened to me in all that last week? I knew in my mind the gospel, that God was still for me, and that he was working out all things together for my good. But that suffering, that disappointment and brokenness, and all that crap that I didn't want to come to me, and in all of that, it was really hard to keep my heart um, embracing this gospel in my mind that I knew to be true. Right? Like, I kept thinking, like, God, why would you bring me down here to Memphis to have my wife's organ be taken out, only to go back home again? Like, why would you let the kids be away from us for close to a week? And so, really, I started to ask questions. But I would, I think it'd be safe to say that I'm not the only one who is tempted to ask questions when things don't go right in life. Like, isn't this all of our temptation amidst of trial and suffering to ask God this question, God, you say that you're love, but if you're actually love, why do you cause me to suffer? Well, here's the answer. Um, He doesn't. Um, Our suffering actually is the result of sin and rebellion from the fall. But here's the good news in suffering for the Christian. That God is so gracious and kind in his sovereign reign and rule 
through our suffering, over our suffering, that the promise is for those who are in Christ, that he even uses it when we least feel it for our good and blessing, for our growth. Suffering comes in all different forms, shapes, and sizes to various degrees according to the family or to the person. But here's the deal. Everyone suffers. No one can avoid the fall. Everyone in this room at one time or another has suffered, is suffering, or is going to suffer. Why? Because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so what does John do here in this text? He gives the church one instruction, and that instruction is to what? Is to abide. Why? When life and faith gets hard, we all are tempted to throw in the towel. And John says, don't. Stay in God and him in you. Remember that word abide? Maybe it rings a bell. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 15. Listen to Jesus' teaching on this word abide. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, it is he that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and his branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so to prove that you are my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Therefore, abide in my love. What does it mean to abide in God? Here's the answer most simply, especially for those of you who take notes. What does it mean to abide in God's love? To trust and obey Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, to follow his example. Chapter 3, verse 6, to live free from habitual sin. Chapter 3, verse 24, to obey the commandments of Christ. And lastly here, if you look there in verse 13, to acknowledge and live by the Holy Spirit inside of us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? Are you supposed to feel something, experience something, do something? Yes. You see, after a person makes a true confession of Christ, what happens in the soul is that it becomes indwelled by God and this supernatural spark of grace awakens it to love God and pursue holiness. But like I just said, what ends up happening as we follow Christ in this broken world is that we face the temptation to give up or think it's not worth it or think that God is against us when times get hard. John says, don't think that way. Abide, a.k.a. trust and obey. Look at the promise he says in verse 17. By this, love is perfected. That's the gospel promise. Obedience, which is the fruit of trust. Despite how we feel, despite how life is looking, 
despite if things are going our way or not, that we trust and obey, and obey, and the promise is perfection, that the Spirit in us is conforming us, changing us, growing us into the image of Christ, where we then, by His grace, are able to rest in His love. And no one suffers perfectly. There has only ever been one, and that's on purpose. It's so for the purpose of when you suffer poorly or begin to doubt or begin to think about throwing in the towel or not feel or lose spiritual discipline that you would have a Savior. Look what John says in the text. There is no room for fear for the Christian. There's no room for guilt or shame or condemnation in the journey of abiding, whether we make it or not. Why? Because there is one who's made it for you. We are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the proof of true salvation in the Christian is perseverance. And so I say to you as your pastor, as you consider this idea of abiding, Despite what you feel, despite what comes your way, trust and obey. Mature Christians, trust and obey. Amen? I'd like to finish now on point number three and show you how God's love is actually purposed. Lastly, to exalt Jesus in the church. I just talked to you a little bit about this idea of abiding of trust and obedience and suffering. But um, actually from this context, what I want to do is dig a layer deeper and show you how what John has in mind is actually an application to the church. And I think as Americans, we desperately need to hear this, um, this command to love one another in the local church that we actually belong to. If you look there in verse 20, John says this, if anyone hates his brother and says he loves God, he's a liar. Who John is actually speaking to here in this context is the group of false teachers, otherwise known as the Gnostics. And what those false teachers were doing during this time were claiming to be Christians, but were at the same time avoiding fellowship with the apostles and the rest of the church by pushing back on their community and gatherings for the people. This is how John is using the word hate here. Thus, what he's actually doing is advocating for Christ-centered church community. And this church community is primarily called to represent Christ by and through his love. In what way or manner is this supposed to happen? Well, in the same way that he taught us last chapter, he's teaching in this chapter. As Christ laid his life down for us, so we can be brought into the church and be considered family. In other words, call each other brothers and sisters so we too are to lay our lives down for one another in the context of relationships here in this church so that the church would experience life. You see, the gospel not only calls us to say, uh, to love those who say love is love, but first and foremost for the Christian it calls us to the church, which is the place where those who say God is love 
This is how sanctification and holiness grows. Love in the community of the local church is where God has purposed us to grow and mature in Jesus. And that's why there is pain for me in the American church model. I know I'm part of it. I'm an American. I was born and raised here. You get that. We're all Americans. But do you know what I'm saying? This individualistic, anti-community, I will not invest or commit myself to any people because I want to do what I want. Not here. Not in this text. John says, if you want to grow, you love your brother and sister like Christ. How can you love your brother and sister if you barely come to church or if you just come on a Sunday morning for an hour? I'm not condemning. I'm just naming something that is actually impossible. You actually can't love your brothers and sisters like Christ if you're not totally committed to enhancing and living and serving and uplifting the body to which you belong, the local church. This is how biblically the local church is supposed to survive and flourish and grow. That we love like Christ with humble, selfless, laying our life down. Not like even... A spiritual gifts assessment. Like, that's great. Praise God. When we can serve in our gifts, like, whoa, then we have a double blessing. But really, Christ just calls us to serve whenever, or there's a, whenever there's an opportunity because we die so other people can live. That's the gospel call. And you know who John, well, even greater, you know who Jesus had in mind in the context of covenant community? Non-Christians. I lost my place, but I'm just going to say it anyways. Jesus said, one of the Gospels, by this, they will know that you follow me or are my followers. How? When you love one another. Francis Schaeffer actually called the community of love in the church one of the greatest apologetics of the time. In other words, if we, the church, actually live together and spend time with one another, assist in covenant community to disciple our children together and worship together and enjoy meals and dinners together and life together, then we will know and experience Christ. And then when we live on mission to take our non-believing friends, families, and coworkers into this covenant community, then they will see this type of sacrificial divine love and infinitely, irresistibly be drawn to it. Why? Because it is a way to sense, experience, and know the Savior. Uh, from this passage, we're reminded of the type of love that we're called to, sinners saved by grace. That's what keeps up the church, grace. If you're a member here, I just want to remind you of your covenant vows. If you're thinking about becoming a member here, I just want to introduce you on what we view as covenant community so you can have some right expectations. Um, you see, God's love is so much more beautiful and robust than the world's idea of love or definition of it. Because when the world thinks of love, what comes to mind is self-service, self-pleasing, pursuit, and gratification. But when God considers love or shows it, although he does talk about sex and gender and romance and relationship, because he created all of that, what he has in mind primarily for each of them is his son, Jesus Christ. That each relationship and opportunity for love would be expressed in holiness and humility and submission to God the Father's will by example of his sacrifice and service to the point of death so that others may live. Would you this year, 
as the ministry year is approaching. Ask yourself, what is your role here in this covenant community so you can participate in exalting Christ and making this place beautiful? That's how God is glorified in the local church. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you would love us and you always love us and um, your love for us will never be greater because it's completed in Jesus and we can bask in it eternally. You'll never love us more. You'll never love us less. Jesus' love is perfected. Holy Spirit, would you commit us to you and to this family of believers who are imperfect and ordinary, who are so much different than us, random strangers. We're not just random strangers, Lord. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So help us to view this place as beloved, the way that you call your bride. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.